He just was suffocated and exploited, and he says he's exploited. So I try to sort of insert his point of view where he says, for example, in this collaboration, he did all the work. He said Warhol was lazy. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. The author Ishmael Reed is known as a major force in literature and has been called one of the key thinkers of multiculturalism. Born in 1938, Reed arrived with a bang in 1972 with Mumbo Jumbo, a brilliant, hard-to-describe novel that blends real historical events with outrageous fantasy about a plague of dancing that breaks out, spread by black artists and musicians, and a shadowy international conspiracy to contain its disruptive power. Reed's career has included novels, essays, and polemics, as well as plays. And he has recently come out with a work for the stage that looks at how we tell the story of another giant of the late 20th century, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Basquiat is today among the most widely known painters, and his life story is almost as famous as his art itself. He burst into the spotlight in the early 80s, first as a savvy street artist, and then with his vibrant style of painting. By 1985, Basquiat was on the cover of the New York Times magazine, the symbol of the 1980s art boom. By the end of the decade, he was dead of an overdose of heroin at the age of 27. Reed's play, titled The Slave Who Loved Caviar, is sharply critical of how Basquiat's story gets told as one of self-destruction instead of exploitation. It homes in on Basquiat's famous relationship with the elder Andy Warhol, which has been told and retold in the painter Julian Schnabel's famous 1996 film Basquiat, as well as more recently in Anthony McCartan's Broadway play The Collaboration, soon to be a film, and in many other places. Like Mumbo Jumbo, The Slave Who Loved Caviar tackles the serious subject of how black culture is treated in society in a fantastic way. It features police investigators literally reviewing the evidence that the white art world failed Basquiat, but it also has a vampire aristocrat character depicted as a present-day Andy Warhol-like figure out to collaborate with a young black artist who goes by the name Young Blood. The play was performed in 2021 and 2022 at the Theater for the New City in New York. It has just been published in a text by Archway Editions with a forward and afterward where Reed responds to some of the criticism his take on Basquiat's story stirred up then. Ishmael Reed, it's an honor to talk to you today. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. So before we get into the play itself, I just wanted to start by asking you, what inspired you to write a play about Jean-Michel Basquiat and his story? I was uh, putting another play to bed in New York. And all of a sudden there occurred some coincidences where Basquiat's name came up and ended with me walking toward the subway after a television show. And one of the participants in the show was a sculptor who knew Basquiat and who was uh, delivering art supplies. And he actually delivered some art supplies to uh, that basement that Aninia Nosei had given him space. And uh, he said that Basquiat invited him to a show and he didn't show up. This is an older black guy. Yeah. 1980, early 80s memory. And it's not that this man has a sculpture that's up in maybe Times Square or someplace that he was working on at the time. I think it's up now. 
And so later I heard that Ray Saunders, a very distinguished African-American painter who lives in uh, San Francisco or Oakland, he teaches at the California College of the Arts. I heard that Basquiat tried to reach him. And I thought that this was a uh, young artist looking for an older black mentor. Oh, interesting. And without that contact, I think he was left to the mercies of this downtown decadent art scene of which uh, Andy Warhol was the leader. That's interesting. So it began with a personal encounter, just bringing up the Basquiat story. Did you have a big exposure to his story before that? I had friends who knew him, and I just dismissed him as the latest token of the New York art crowd. You know, they have a tendency of going back to the 20s, I guess, of laying tokens on us, you know, literary tokens or art tokens, where there might be a lot of talent in the generation, but they're the ones who are in charge of directing trends in Black literature and Black arts. So I just thought, especially that cover of the New York Times Magazine section, where he was sort of like depicted as a primitive. Right. But then I got into it, and I discovered that there was a tragic story here, and that he was a man who was alienated from his family, although his mother encouraged his artistic inclinations, taking him to museums, yeah, that's right. It's something I think gets left out of the story sometimes that, you know, he wasn't a primitive. He was going to museums when he was a kid. He's a very sophisticated artist. Then, you know, ending up in the village as a teenager, really someone without mentors and someone who was like placed into this decadent scene. Right. I mean, he said his favorite book was Junkie by William Burroughs. I mean, right. William Burroughs is really a low-down degenerate. If you don't know that, read John Journal's book, The Great Demon Kings. <laughs> he joined us as, as William Burroughs is like opening up a smack house where people off the street would come in and he would take the first injection because he didn't want to get AIDS. I mean, it's typical of those guys. I knew some of those guys when I was living in New York. So he's at the mercies of these people and depended upon them. And they really didn't care all that much for him. And when he died, he was abandoned. Right. So this is a play, The Slave Who Loved Caviar, where the characters are constantly referencing the research and the literature on Basquiat. What was your own process of research? Well, I'm going to send you a bibliography because I read a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a play that comes with a bibliography. Yeah, well, I mean, that's because I've always had to prove myself. I mean, some of the things about American history and culture are so fantastic, people don't believe you. They think you're some kind of wild person. So I started putting footnotes on everything. But anyway, I thoroughly researched this actually found out some information from Basquiat's point of view. Because of the power of the Warhol machine, you know, his point of view is always upheld. Mm -hmm. Also because he's white. Sure. Have something to do with that. And of course, the abstract expressionists, <laughs> they put them out of business. As a matter of fact, the abstract expressionists had a big protest about this work, pop art, getting into the galleries. But this is a big machine, and they roll right over him. And he just was suffocated and exploited, and he says he's exploited. So I try to sort of insert his point of view, where he says, for example, in this collaboration, he did all the work. He said Warhol was lazy mm -hmm. and said he was exploited by people like, you know, the art dealer went to prison for tax evasion. Mary, what's her name? Mary Boone, yeah. yeah she was. <laughs> That's not mentioned in this play, The Collaborator. That yeah. They mention her, but they don't mention the fact that she went to prison for tax fraud for spending stuff on luxury mm -hmm. items. Those are the kind of people he was dealing with. Yeah, so this play, I have not seen it. I've seen the uh, stage reading that the New York Poets Cafe put on, but it was performed at the Theater for the New City in uh, 2021 
2022, the winter season. It was supposed to return, but there was so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get into that. So what was the reaction like? <laughs> well, I mean, we had great audiences. At the time, I think that uh, some of the New York theaters were cut down because of COVID. But we had healthy audiences, and we were invited to return in February until Anina Nosehi raised a big fuss about her portrayal. Now, the portrayal of her, Nina Nosei, was what I got from other books. Right. I don't think she sued those people. But in one of the texts that I examined, Pascal said he's exploited by her. He was her victim. He was young, didn't know any better. People uh, describe his conditions in her basement as a dungeon mm-hmm. where rich people were invited in to gawk at him. And he complained that she sold paintings that were not finished. Right. And they had him painting around the clock. They gave him a lot of coke. One visitor said there was coke everywhere. I said, well, you know, I used to party, you know, when I was a young person in these wealthy homes, and they'd have drugs everywhere. Nobody complained. You go to Dakota and, and, you know, places like that. Rich people had drugs. While thousands of black and Latino kids, white kids, not as many white kids, but thousands of Latino and black kids were getting busted for a joint, you know? The coke was there. I think she turned the other way. My mind wanders around like stream of consciousness when I'm writing. So I connected that with the slave trade, where I discovered, doing research for the play, that uh, slave masters used to give their slaves uh, cocaine to increase production. So I sort of compared it to that. So uh, she got very upset, and she was friends of uh, Crystal, who uh, is the uh, producer. And Crystal said I couldn't bring the play back. Yeah, she says she had an emotional conflict of interest is the letter that you publish in your She book. threatened to sue. And uh, she got Linda Yablonski, one of her friends, to do a hit job in arts, a newspaper. And it was so excessive. She went really over the top that she apologized. She apologized to you or? She apologized to me. Yeah. Linda Yablonski. In print or no? She blamed on the editor. She said, well, the editor had put some stuff in there. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, there's a picture of me, Nosei, and my wife, Carl Blank, who directed the play in the lobby. In the intermission, I went out there and I saw it. I said, oh, boy, am I going to get it? So we all, <laughs> excuse me, we all posed for pictures. <laughs> and later she got offended because she's hard of hearing. And so she didn't hear my stuff about her in the act, first act. And so later somebody sent her the script and she really hit the ceiling. Yeah, so I read the Yablonski review, said, you know, this wasn't a dungeon, this was a giant studio with a skylight, and, you know, I never gave him drugs. You know, he was doing drugs, but what could you do? What could you do? I didn't say that she gave him drugs. I said she looked the other way while he's consuming drugs. And so there's a little afterwards in the Archway edition of the play that I take is you responding to that controversy. You say, um, those who leached off Jean-Michel Basquiat didn't force cocaine on him, but as long as his feverish production lined their pockets, they looked the other way while he slowly killed himself. Yeah, one of uh, the observers, whom I quote from one of the books, said that he's like treated like a slave. I mean, you know, I didn't go that far. Well, I mean, it's called The Slave Who Loved Caviar. (laughs) Well, well, there's a scene in the... uh, that movie where he's loading up on caviar. Right. That's where I got it from. Not only did Warhol benefit from the collaboration, which is what Boscout said, that he got more out of it than he did, but he charged him rent. Right, right. This is later than that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at one point, Boscout says, well, maybe I'm a flash in a pan. And Warhol says, well, if he's a flash in a pan, how's he going to pay the rent? 
I mean, I guess starting their career as a department store, they really were interested in profit. You know, right, Andy right. Warhol Enterprises, you know. Yeah, and just to say, I mean, I think Phoebe Hoban's book, Jean-Michel Basquiat, A Quick Killing in Art, is one of the big sources for this. It was considered an odd arrangement to a lot of people at the time and ongoing that he lived in the basement producing paintings for this gallery. Don Rebel, one of the big collectors, says in that book, it wasn't handled well. He quickly became a commodity. Come and see the artist perform. He could put out two or three paintings a day. It was easy to take advantage of him. Well, he says in his own words, he says he was a victim. Right. That wasn't the only dust-up around the play. You also had a run with the Andy Warhol Foundation over some of the art for The Slave Who Loved Caviar. What, what happened there? The uh, poster over which the uh, Warhol Foundation threatened to sue. There's a painting where Boscat lists the words parasite, leeches, parasites, leeches. Mm-hmm. And I took a photograph that Warhol did of Boscat clad only in, in a jockstrap. Mm-hmm. And I put leeches all over his body. And I put Warhol's picture in each leech and they really hit the ceiling and i said well you guys his whole thing was transforming thing you know he got yeah he got sued by this artist goldsmith for that prince lynn goldsmith yeah i actually saw some of the commentary around that supreme court case which was about a photographer saying that you know warhol had taken one of her photos without using it and the foundation saying you know well he transformed it he made it his own i saw your run-in with the warhol foundation over this work of art referenced in some of the conversation about how the attitude is kind of it's okay if we do it it's not okay if someone else does it. i sent a letter to the times which they printed because they had one of these academics defending warhol and you know he had the freedom to do this i said well you know they wouldn't permit me to transform one of his photographs that's in the New York Times. What happened with that? So did the artwork stand or did... No, they took it down. I had to do another poster. And then they'll say, she threatened to sue. We got it done and there was a reading of the play a couple of months ago by the Afro Shakespeare Company in uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So we're able to continue. My lawyers out here said I had a good case to sue for libel. But Ronald Tavall, the uh, scriptwriter for Warhol, mm-hmm. he tried to sue Warhol for ripping his stuff off and... You know, they got the Andy Warhol Foundation lawyers, man. I mean, that's a $200 million operation, so he had to drop it. Well, so in broad strokes, for people who haven't seen it, what is the story of the slave who loved caviar? It's an unusual play. Well, it uh, sort of goes into myth. What I did was I used two forensics experts to examine the relationship. They go in and out of the play, bringing up information about Warhol and uh Matter of fact, I had a thing here where the vampire motif, Warhol was into vampirism, and his nickname around the uh, factory was Drella, which was a combination of Cinderella and Dracula. That's right, yeah, yeah. So when I read uh, Jono's book, I found he was a shoe fetishist. So Mm -hmm. I brought that Cinderella Thing. And also, you know, going back to the origin of the myth in Egypt. You know, you're considered one of the pioneers of postmodern literature, going back to your novel, Mumbo Jumbo, which is about this epidemic of dancing <laughs> that breaks out. And the slave who loved caviar definitely has this kind of comical fever dream style. It goes back and forth between this literal almost prosecution uh, where like bringing forward the evidence for like a darker relationship than people normally allow between Basquiat and Warhol. And then these like characters who are contemporary characters who are like literal vampires. And so you have a character in the play who's called the Baron, who's like a contemporary 
art vampire, basically, and characters who kind of parallel present day versions of artists who might fill the same kind of role as a Basquiat. Well, he was called a vampire, you know, Warhol. And, you know, he did vampire films. And uh, the idea that he was sucking the blood. As a matter of fact, one observer said that Basquiat offered Warhol new blood. So I just took that brand with that metaphor. Which is like maybe really one of your overall thesis is in this is that it was really a relationship where Warhol was basically exploiting Basquiat. Oh, he says that. As a matter of fact, the Warhol Foundation told me when they threatened to sue me that they had their version, which is the collaborator. Yeah, this is a play that came out sort of at the same time as your play. My play was not mentioned here in the press, but it was mentioned in London Times because it was, I think it was performed at the Old Vic. Yep. And the London Times mentioned that I had a play at the same time. But our play was ignored because it's a Warhol machine. There's a lot of money in Warholism in New York. You know, that's a billion-dollar thing. I was sort of, like, suffocated, and that's why I had to go to off-off-Broadway to get it done. But uh, The Collaborator is the official play of the Warhol uh, Foundation, and they told us that. They, we have our own play, and in that play, Warhol is sanitized. And he's sort of like a male nurse to this primitive. It goes out of the way to say that they're buddy-buddy. It has a, what I call an ebony and ivory. Remember that Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder? It has an ebony, <laughs> ivory ending where they're all, you know, swooshing each other. And, you know, we're all, well, I had nothing uh, but contempt for uh, uh, Basquiat. He called him a nuisance, said he was dirty, said he'd never have sex with him. Uh, just put him down uh, in one of the sources. He really goes all out. And one of uh, Warhol's girlfriends, probably the only one who really cared about him, went to tell Warhol that uh, his heroin use, Basquiat's heroin use, had become so excessive. She called for an intervention, and Warhol quipped, well, maybe he wants to be the first one to go out early. Right. And, and he had that attitude towards some of the other younger people, like uh, Sedwich and Sedwich, yeah. uh, Herco the Dancer said that, well, if she's going to commit suicide, maybe I can film it. He said the same thing about Herkel. If he's going to commit suicide, maybe I can be there. Why wasn't I there to film it? Yeah. Shockingly cold. Shockingly cold is one way that people described Warhol. And this play, the Anthony McCartan play, is the playwright. He also did uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and a bunch of other films. He's an official cleaner. What do you mean? He cleaned up Benedict. I mean, he did this thing called Two Popes. Where Benedict's up there giving him hip records out and all that, making him hip. I mean, Benedict can't come out of the Vatican City because he'd be arrested. (laughs) He'd be sent to the hay because because he covered up the pedophilia scandal. You know, that's one of the reasons he had to resign. But he cleans him up. He cleans up Churchill. Yeah, he did the script for the movie called The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. Now, in The Collaborator, they make a lot of mention of uh, Boscat's drug use. Mm -hmm. There's one vile cartoon that somebody did with Pascal with white women and hypodermic needles, you know, all this scary monster stuff, boogeyman stuff. But they don't mention Warhol's uh, drugs. He had two drugs. Uh, one was uh, speed. Our journal said he was addicted to speed. So they don't mention his drug use. He's sort of sanitized in this play. I guess that was the intention. Yeah, I, I've not seen the play, but from what I understand it, it's sort of a almost like a, 
a wary buddy story where they start out being uh, nervous about each other, about this idea of a collaboration. It's about their collaborative project um, that they did that recently has gotten a lot more of attention. People probably know the famous poster of Basquiat and Warhol as boxers. And it sort of starts out with them being wary about this kind of idea of a commercial collaboration between the two of them and then kind of ends with them bringing out the tenderness. Yeah, the show was a flop, that collaboration. When it was exhibited, it was a flop. Of course, the the, uh, New York critics who had it in for Basquiat, who dismissed his talents, you know, they really trashed it. As a result, Basquiat stopped talking to Warhol for a while. Yeah, and certainly I think that's one of the things that led Basquiat to think that he had been treated as a fad and that the New York art world was about to drop him, and that certainly contributed to his downward spiral. They considered him a monkey man, and uh, I think Ms. Nosei got upset because I compared his condition with that of Otto Binga. Otto Binga was a twa, or what people call pygmies, and they put him in the zoo in the Bronx with the animals. He finally committed suicide. And as a matter of fact, the New York Times of the day say, well, he seems to be enjoying himself in there, you know. So I was comparing his situation with Basquiat's. He was definitely exploited. He talks about it. He rails against those people. One more point about the play. I think he has a character named Mike. One of Basquiat's girlfriends sold a refrigerator to Salabies because he had uh-huh. scribble all over it. And I think she sold it for $5,000. Now, in the play, she sold it to pay for an abortion that she was pregnant by Basquiat. Wow, black men impregnating white women. That never happened. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the situation. She sold the refrigerator to pay her rent. That's what she says. And she's incapable of having children. So they took these kind of liberties where Warhol had to pay off his debts and like take care of him like, as if Basquiat was like his ward or something like that. Does the play go into how Basquiat also paid Warhol rent? I found that other places. Yeah, because at one point, Warhol was Basquiat's landlord. <laughs> he also had a suite or something like in the Ritz-Carlton. He had no respect at all for money. Like, you know, he's a young kid, like these rappers, you know, they get hundreds of millions of dollars and all of a sudden they're broke. So he had no respect for money. He was 27 or something like that when he died, so just a kid. <laughs> he died at the age that rock stars die at. Yeah, and nobody seemed to care about what happened to him. The other big avatar of the mythical or interpretation of Basquiat is the Julian Schnabel movie from 1996, which I think came out not that long after his death and is probably one of the big ways that people know the Basquiat story in the first place. And you also bring it up in the play. So what's your beef with that film? I thought they sort of like... uh depicted uh, Basquiat as sort of like a bum stumbling around New York and sleeping in boxes. And, you know, I actually talked to some people who knew him. Uh, Charlotte Tocqueville, who's Native American, said that he worked in an art supply store. And she acquainted him with uh, Native American art. And because she said that, I went and examined some of his stuff, and you could see the influence of uh, Native American art there, TPs, pictographs. And... Uh, she said she didn't expect for the New York critics to note that. So operating from an American Eurocentric, I call it American Eurocentric because I've been to Europe many times and find out the Europeans seem to be more sophisticated about black culture and arts than the overseas colony, like Rhodesia. You look at New York Times editorial page, those guys right there, like guys in a settler club, you know, with brandy, you know, 
what Basquiat did was to show how looking at things from an American Eurocentric point of view is obsolete when examining art from multiculturalism, multicultural art, you know? Mm-hmm. For example, they could identify the Haitian influences in his work, which are obvious. You know, you get some of the Haitian entities like Baron Samedi and some other uh, characters from Haitian mythology in there. They weren't able to identify that. So I think the reason for the panic in the country today is that the old ways of examining art, culture, are obsolete. And people are being surpassed by a new generation of Native American Black, Latino, Hispanic artists who are introducing other ways of looking at things. That's the reason for this big panic about wokeism. And that's what I tried to point out in Mumbo Jumbo. In Mumbo Jumbo, the headline of Mumbo Jumbo is that there's something about black culture that causes mass hysteria, whether it be rock and roll or wokeness or whatever, that people just go off. Like, for example, you have these people campaigning for a president who are talking about critical race theory, and it's not being taught. It's a big old hallucination. They talk about things that don't exist. I think that's happening with the critical response to Basquiat's art, that Basquiat was really more sophisticated than they were. That's really interesting because it is, I think, he was then, and to a certain extent, continues to be read, you know, basically as a street artist who worked on canvas. But even within the framework of street artists, he was a pretty unique figure. You know, he wasn't working on subway cars. He was hitting walls in Soho. He would put the copyright symbol in his graffiti, like really self-consciously riffing on art and commerce, just even when he was writing on walls. He also did parodies of the so-called European masters. Right. Like transform them. So he's a pretty sophisticated artist. And he complained that he was still considered a graffiti artist when some of those who started out with him were no longer regarded as that, that they were regarded as true artists. But getting back to uh, Schnabel, I quoted Jim... Uh, Jarmusch? Yeah, Jim Jarmusch, yeah. He says, I knew Jean-Michel, and he was not friends with Julian. I like Julian very much. He's a very generous guy, even if he is an egotistical character. I refused to talk to Schnabel about Jean-Michel when he was making the film, but Jean-Michel was not a fan of Schnabel as a person back then and would not betray him in that way. And then Basquiat's female companion, Paige Powell, was probably the only person down there who really gave a damn about Basquiat, whether he lived or died. And she said that Basquiat ridiculed Schnabel's work. And then he talked about how he stood up Mary Boone. And uh, Andy Warhol dismissed Schnabel as pushy, a bad painter, (laughs) who visits other people's studio to see what he can copy. Okay? Right. So I said that given the rivalry between Schnabel and Basquiat, it's like, Joe Frazier doing the Muhammad Ali story. Right, right. Because Basquiat and Schnabel were both considered big, you know, painters in this time period. This is painting, neo-expressionist painting is what people called it at the time, or the critical establishment. So they were like kind of part of the same boom at the time. And then the 1996 Basquiat film really is kind of a comeback for Schnabel, you know, after the big bursting of the 80s art market. He sort of reinvents himself as a filmmaker through Basquiat's story. Everybody's a real character in that film. They're there by name as the real historical people, except for there's one character who's clearly meant to be Julian Schnabel, who has a different name in the film and is depicted as this kind of like big brother figure to him in the film. Well, he says that Schnabel doesn't actually appear in the movie, but there's a scene of Basquiat 
and Warhol's collaboration at the factory, it has as backdrop several silkscreen paintings that depict Schnabel as a young, lean man. Paintings that Warhol never made. There you go. There you go. So (laughs) that's the kind of character you run into in New York. Yeah, and just to say so people know, I believe that Jeffrey Wright, the actor, I think is an excellent actor, kind of made his career playing basket. I think he's still proud of that film. But I believe he has said that he does not think that the film captured the Basquiat sphere. He said that Julian made him out to be too docile and too much of a victim and too passive and not as dangerous as he really was. It's about containing Basquiat. It's about aggrandizing himself through Basquiat's memory. That's the actor from the film, just so people know. So we've already gotten into it a little. So there's the way Basquiat gets portrayed, it kind of underplays maybe the extent to which people looked at him and saw dollar signs and treated him as a, a kind of a primitive But there's also the myth of Warhol. The other half of this book is like kind of a takedown of Warhol. So what do you think the myth of Warhol is and how do you see him? And it's a guy who loves his mother and goes to church. And a terrific wit. I think he shows the depth of wit for conceptual art. He was really like a comedian of few words. Like someone says, why do you copy? (laughs) This is a great response. They say, why do you copy other people's work? He says, it's easier. That in itself is art. I had my friend, Steve Cannon, who became a real icon of Lori Side, the emperor of Lori yeah, Side. Yeah, the Gathering of the Tribes. Yeah, the space called the Gathering of the Tribes. And they would fly him to Europe to curate art shows, and he was blind. As a matter of fact, somebody said, you don't know what's worse, a blind man with a pistol, a blind man with an art gallery. But these characters themselves, I mean, they're, they're spin, their whole style and the branding was actually the art. So you look at Warhol's statements, he's an enigma. You can't figure him out. Then, of course, after he shot, Taylor Mead said if Valerie Solanus hadn't shot him, he would have shot him. Did you run across that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the factory was an iconic space and like gets romanticized is this wonderful thing. I think a lot of people did have wonderful experiences there, but then not everybody did. He didn't pay him. People complained he didn't get paid. I think Jerry Maligna was the only one who got paid. People were always saying that he ripped them off. But anyway, Taylor Mead, there was something called Taylor Mead's Ass or something like that, a film he did. And he promised <laughs> he promised Taylor Mead that this would be done in private. And all of a sudden, Taylor Mead looks around, there's the audience watching him, right? And he said if Valerie Solanas had shot him, he would have shot him. There's so much money in Warhol that there is... I think, a real impetus to kind of smooth over the rougher edges or the darker sides. You know, in the collaborator, he says, Warhol says, innocently, he says, Basquiat, why so much death in your stuff? What? I mean, he has pictures of electric chairs, suicides. He paid to have a photo done of a suicide victim who jumped off an apartment building. I mean, you could call this stuff a death cult. Dotson Reader says uh, his uh, young uh, protégés have a tendency to die young. Yeah, and people talk about the 15 minutes of fame line and accurately talk about, okay, so this predicts, you know, everybody's going to be famous or everybody's going to want to be famous. But the 15 minutes part is important. That it's like, you can get to be famous, but like, it's going to be part of a culture that just uses people up. 
as fast as it can for their novelty or for whatever energy they provide. And I feel like this play, your thesis, correct me if I'm wrong, is essentially, you know, Warhol was someone who kind of made art kind of latching on to brands and images that he could kind of like absorb some of their energy. I think you see him as like treating Basquiat basically the same. He sees Basquiat as this black artist who has like a lot of attention that he can kind of like bring him into his art world and kind of absorb his energy, almost like a found object. Oh, like a vampire. Just vampirism, you know, all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't think of it that way, but it makes perfect sense. Something you find in the streets. Right, something you find in the streets. Absolutely. I want to talk about a little tangent in the play. There's this character named Jack Brooks, who's an elderly, homeless, black, abstract painter as a character. It's an episode that kind of happens as a tangent in the play, but I think it's really important to the play that in this story about Basquiat, who's a contemporary painter, and Warhol, who's a pop artist, there's this other story of this black abstract painter who comes in to kind of talk to the younger generation, essentially, of artists looking to make the devil's bargain with the art world about what things meant. So I wanted to ask you, what's the inspiration for Jack Brooks? You, I guess you already talked about that at the beginning a little. And what's he supposed to represent in the play? I wrote an uh, essay in Arts Magazine. that was published, I think, in 1969, where I said there was racism in the museums in New York. And there was an uproar among the black painters because they were in a competition over who would be selected to be in one of the museums. Right. Real cutthroat. As a matter of fact, in the play, I have the, the abstract painter murdering another painter. The competition in New York was such that I always thought about a play about a black painter murdering another painter because he didn't get a show or something. In your play, this guy who's living on the streets talks about how referencing kind of sideways versions of real events in New York, right? There was a boycott by black artists, and this other painter contacted me and said, like, we're all boycotting, you know, I think uh, it's the Whitney in your play. And then this painter, Jack Brooks, finds out that the person who warned him crossed the picket line and was in this show. And then is, has so much rage about that that he ends up killing him. Well, that's based upon a real incident. I don't want to mention the painters. So they both are deceased. One of the reasons I left New York was because of this sort of like competition among tokens where people have to audition to be selected by whether it be the New York Literary Establishment or other museums. So I got a great backlash on that piece. And what I found out, what I discovered, was that in order to succeed in New York, black painters had to imitate every trend or standard trend that was happening in the art world. So when social realism was in, they into that. And then when abstract expressionism replaced social realism, you know, abstract expressionism is favored by the Central Intelligence Agency. I read, you know, because it doesn't have sort of like the political themes that we're used to. No, social realism paintings were destroyed or burned up. And so they followed that. So when abstract expressionism fell, they were out of a job. And contrast that with some of the painters in the West, like Hal Woodruff, who did murals. And the murals actually supplemented teachings of black history. For example, I didn't know there was black people in the Pony Express until I saw Hal Woodruff's paintings, or that there were whalers, you know, black people involved in whaling. Interesting. These are teaching materials, these murals. I like some extract expressions, but I think it was an example of how a generation of artists were dependent upon white masters. You got that in literature, too. Right. So you had black writers of the 1950s, Baldwin, Ellison, others, you know, 
making tribute to Henry James or imitating Ernest Hemingway or others. In the 1960s, we broke with that. There's no Western antecedent for our stuff. There's no Western antecedent for mumbo-jumbo, you know? So that was a departure from that. So I was dealing with a group of painters who were still into this thing where you had to copy the masters. Well, you referenced at the beginning of the conversation this idea of Basquiat reaching out for mentorship to an older Black painter. I did not know that story. And I know that I've read... And I think of Lorraine O'Grady's essay, The Black and White Show, about Basquiat. And that's one of her theses, too, that he like was laser focused on the white art world because that's where the money was. But that that also killed him, you know, because he didn't have the experience of an older generation who had gone through the kind of like being picked up as the latest thing and then dropped. So that's what I was thinking Jack Brooks represents also is like the past. Your play has this parallel structure where it's Basquiat, Warhol's story, the story of their collaboration, and this contemporary vampire sort of preying on this young street artist, Youngblood, and the conversation between Jack Brooks and Youngblood and a young woman in your play, Jennifer Blue, who I think is maybe an analog for Eddie Sedgwick. I'm not sure, but definitely another person who's being picked up and feasted on by this vampire. And at one point, your detective character says to her, you know, what do they teach you at Bard? <laughs> you know, what did you learn about history? So it feels like that section of this book is about history. Is that like, we need to know this history. Everything I write, every book I write, novels have something about history, connected to history. Absolutely. So just a couple more things. So Basquiat had a meeting with Richard Pryor, the great comedian in L.A. in the mid-80s. You were a friend of Richard Pryor. You knew Richard Pryor. And The Slave Who Loved Caviar ends with this kind of ghost monologue where Richard Pryor sort of speaks to Basquiat. How does that come in? Uh, like, what was your experience of Pryor and what are the parallels between these two figures? The Richard Pryor knew was a nasty, troubled person and really selfish. When he left Berkeley, I think he committed suicide in a sense that he had the freedom to exercise his art because we told him that he couldn't come to Berkeley and do that Las Vegas stuff. And when he left Berkeley, and he'll say that in his autobiography, he was different from when he came to Berkeley. So then he went to Hollywood, and he was in all these crappy movies, like uh, the one where he's this white kid's toy. And He was in Superman 3. I mean, he never had a movie that was really worthy of his uh, stature as a stand-up comedian and figure. There was one, Which Way Is Up, I think. Cecil Brown, his friend in Berkeley, co-wrote that. But he just went downhill after that and then got really absorbed by drugs. And the same thing happened to Basquiat. And I think Basquiat, I mean, the gateway was those people who looked the other way while he took a lot of cocaine. I mean, before that, I don't think he could afford all those drugs, but then he had all his cocaine. He had these Armani suits and painted in these Armani suits and got paint all over him. It was just a tragic story. One thing the Schnabel leaves out, he shows uh, surfing. There's some scenes from Hawaii. The theme in the film, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't go into Basquiat achieving peace in Hawaii. And so I propose at the end, what would have happened if he had gone to Haiti instead of returning to New York where he died? He said, New York is killing me. You know, I imagine him being in Haiti. The mother or the father was from Haiti. He includes that heritage in his work. So I think the drugs... Unite these tragedies, are both tragedies. I mean, I think there's a huge impetus in art history to soften 
the story, basically, to like make things more telegenic than they were, you know, soften out the rough edges. Obviously, there's these multiple Basquiat stories on film and other ones we know, and they contain the drama. You know, there's a lot of drama in his life, and they play that up, but they also, you know, soften different things. And your, I think, play is literally trying to, like, bring forth the evidence for the more difficult side of this story. Do you think there's a danger in overcorrecting? I mean, when people ask him about living in the basement of Anina Nose Gallery, he said... Would they say that if I was white? they just say I was an artist in residence. <laughs> you know, is there a danger of taking away this guy's agency or some of the complexity of him if we treat him as just a victim? I inserted the uh, myth of Hadrian, who was this emperor who had his uh, favorite boy. And one version of the uh, myth is that the boy had to die in order to cure Hadrian. And I think something like that happened in the uh, that relationship. But he did complain about his situation. Absolutely. I mean, he did know he was being eaten alive, for sure. Yeah. And at the end of his life, I mean, he would say, you know, like, they tell me to get off the drugs, and then when they get off the drugs, they say my painting suffers. What am I supposed to do? Which is, to an extent, the drugs talking. But it's also, you know, definitely, like, true. He felt like people wanted this mythical rock star artist that had come to be his livelihood. You know, he was assaulted by Wall. I do not know the story of him being attacked by Warhol. Warhol brings it up. Warhol talks about it. They were in Italy. And I think the reason was that Basquiat was getting more attention and he slapped him. He sort of like enjoys that moment. That really reveals a lot about their relationship. Well, so what do you make of the contemporary Basquiat industry? Because certainly there's this huge Warhol machine, but maybe now there is a Basquiat machine to rival it in terms of the huge auction prices, the endless amounts of Basquiat merch, the Brooklyn Nets were using a Basquiat logo for a while on their jerseys. What do you make of all this? Now, you take this Floyd George. The George Floyd. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I always do that. This poor guy had a $20 counterfeit bill. I think he was trying to buy some cigarettes or something like that. His death generated a billion-dollar industry. I mean, everybody's getting paid. Over his, over his live execution, capitalism can absorb even those forces that want to overthrow it. Like uh, Bob Marley revolutionary tunes being used to sell travel ads for Jamaica, using Jack Kerouac to sell a Chrysler. There's some middle-aged guy driving along, quoting Jack Kerouac's on the road, got this $55,000 car store. That's the genius of capitalism. They can make money off of anything, even those forces that want to bring it down. The last question I want to ask you is about the music in the play. You wrote the music for the play. You wrote a score for it. And the play itself in Act 1, Scene 7, the characters like speculate about what Basquiat would be as music, you know, talking about, you know, well, he wouldn't be Miles Davis. It's too soft. So... How did you think about the project of making a score for Basquiat? Well, you know, he, his style was pretty loud and in your face. It didn't have anything to do with cool jazz. I mean, if anything, it probably related more to hot jazz, like Louis Armstrong and that tradition and this cool stuff that came along in the 50s. I wrote the music to save money. <laughs> uh, the playwright's ultimate. Uh, it all comes down to materialist explanation. It all comes down to... Uh, you know, it became a CD, the, the Hands of Grace, that uh, selling very well. And it's been picked up by a Japanese distributor. But the reading group in New York 
manufactured CDs with some of the music from uh, the play. Oh, really? Yeah, so we have to try to save money. Now, the new play, I take a role in that play, and my daughter takes a role because we don't have to pay them. So we're trying to save money any way we can. I didn't get any grants or any support. I have a couple of patrons, but we have to really operate on tight budgets. Right. Well, thank you so much then for taking time out to talk to me about your play. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It helps other listeners discover what we're doing, and that helps us out a great deal. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you back here next week.